on this episode of Adventures in Being Gifted. Personalized learning is um, just at the very core of what humans do as they interact with one another. So I think that the spirit and the way that I engage in personalization is thinking about it as a culture or a mind shift. So it's not an initiative, it's not a thing that you do. It's a way of, of working and interacting with your learners to make sure that you're partnering and engaging in this kind of messy, joyful, and energizing uh, experience. That and a whole lot more coming up. So today's episode, we are going to be talking about personalized learning and basically what it is, the definition, why it's important, and why we really need to be putting a name to what we do naturally in education. It's a messy, wonderful process that needs to be something that the kids and students enjoy and actually have a stake in their learning. Yeah, and it is definitely a journey. It as for teachers it's a journey and mm-hmm. for our students is a journey, but it makes me think back to our episode that we had recently with Jim Delisle and how he saw the huge benefits from just digging into the interests of students and having them put a stake in their own learning and being involved and even him creating and designing curriculum around things that students were interested in and how much that just changes the classroom. Absolutely. And that's what our guest talks about today with this mind shift of changing the way that we basically all grew up in the 80s and the 90s of doing school to this co-creation with our students because that's really where their interest and willingness to engage in joyful learning lies. And I think that's where we are trying to learn. It's not just all on the shoulders of the teachers to come up with the curriculum or the content, but yet ask the students what they are interested in, tie it into current events, help them find out the connection with the real world out there. It's, I love it. It's the way we do things in our room and we love it. So let's find out more. Here we go. Hello, everyone. We are talking with longstanding education consultant, author, business owner, and teacher, Allison Zmuda. Allison is best known for her work on personalization and the habits of mind in conjunction with Ben Akalik. Our district has been lucky to implement some of your work with personalization as one of our educational foundations. So we are so excited to have you here with us, Allison, and hear all that you have to say. So welcome. Thank you so much, Jill and Jessica. I'm over the moon to have a conversation with you. We are so excited to have you as well because we have worked with you for, gosh, has it been like six, seven years in our district? And it's just been really cool to see the progression of where we started and where we've, you know, gotten to and where we continue to head. And so we're just really excited to hear more of your story. So would you start us off by telling us, Just the origin of your background, like where did it all start? We know you were a classroom teacher at the beginning. So tell us what happened. So let's go back a couple of years. So I um, was born in Montclair, New Jersey. So that is where I spent my entire um, growing up. Mm -hmm. I went all the way through the public schools. So in that time, it was um, like late 1970s, early 1980s, when I made my way through it. Um, so at that time, uh, the there was this uh, powerful move in that public school district where they um, identified and created magnet school programs. So I mm-hmm. went to an elementary magnet school specializing in math and science. So, and again, in the 1970s, it was pretty cool. Um, I had an opportunity um, to... Uh, 
go on one of the first like Apple IIEs with the logo and the turtle. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> we also had an opportunity to um, have like a planetarium. I mean, there are lots of cool things that elementary school kids typically don't get to experience. So that was my initial foray. And then I went all the way through public high school. And then I graduated and went to Yale University. And I actually, in Yale, um, enrolled in the teaching certification program. So I um, graduated from college and went 30 minutes down the road to Newtown, Connecticut, where I was a first-year classroom teacher at Newtown High School, social studies. Yes. And so what grade? That was my origin. Oh, 9 through 12. So oh. it's one of those um, experiences where you are a 21-year-old, 22-year-old teacher and you're teaching 18-year-olds because I had both freshmen and oh seniors. So, oh, my gosh. So, so yeah, very so it fresh. Was, it was an interesting, uh, like, turnaround. But it was just such a, a fabulous place to, um, you know, spread my wings as a teacher. Yeah. Well, what made you want to be a teacher? Well, so I was one of those geeky kids that um, I, I took textbooks that we were reading, and I made make-believe tests. So I was known that if you could pass one of my tests, um, you would be um, flying on whatever multiple choice test the teacher gave you in high school. So there were a lot, I had like, a group of friends that actually took my test and then used that as their oh, Wow, guide. that's amazing. I love that story. Yeah. <laughs> that's cute. That's right. Aww. And I was notorious for a red pen. Do you know what I mean? So it was like... You graded yeah, all of so your peers' tests. <laughs> exactly, because that's the fun part. Yeah. I wasn't so equipped to have a scantron, but I started really being interested in teaching too, like just surveying what was happening. And then I, in some subjects, I was not the greatest student. So um, there were things that I did to get extra credit. So I used the ditto machines. I, I don't know. Oh, Yes. I, old anybody. <laughs> I remember those. <laughs> but the purple ditto machines, that's how I um, got a couple extra credit points um, to make my um, English teacher happy. So. <laughs> oh my goodness. That is awesome. So moving to now, we know you best and I feel like you are probably best known for your personalization. Yes. So tell our audience what that is and kind of just a little bit about that. Personalized learning is um, just at the very core of what humans do as they interact with one another. So I think that the spirit and the way that I engage in personalization is thinking about it as a culture or a mind shift. So it's not an initiative. It's not a thing that you do. It's a way of, of working and interacting with your learners to make sure that you're partnering and engaging in this kind of messy, joyful, and energizing uh, experience. So that's sort of the, the, the gist of the overall sort of definition of personalization. Um, a, a more formal definition is one that is a progressively learner-driven experience. In other words, we're moving away from our tight scaffolds and scripted directions, and we're moving toward an idea where students have an opportunity to understand what the, what the goals or the aspiration or the direction is for their work, um, how they can continue to engage in deep thinking and questioning, idea generating. And then the other opportunity is starting to think about how they are um, learning how to guide their own learning. Uh, so it's not just the territory of self-direction. It's also the opportunity to become a leader of their own experience, the opportunity to seek out feedback, the opportunity to engage in collaborative experiences where you're seeking out and you're also sharing ideas. I mean, so the power of personalization is very much a human one. Mm. And so who can use this? Like what grade levels for our listeners who may not have known about this? Yeah. So I, I mean, it honestly can be used um, anywhere from three-year-olds all the way up through high school. And 
one of the things that we've been um, engaging with in Mason, Ohio, for example, is thinking about this also as a professional learning experience. So a personalized learning culture means that you have a stake in your own learning. I think that might be a, a succinct way of describing it. And if I have a stake in my own learning, it means that what I think, what I say, what I feel, the kinds of problems or challenges that I have, you need my transparency to actually think and collaborate you, with you as a classroom teacher. So that's the, the, the gist of the idea, because it's not really about how old you are or how expert you are. It's your interest and your willingness to engage in that level of um, complexity and joyful learning. We love that yeah. collaboration yeah. word. That's so important. I think, you know, as we shifted into becoming more personalized teachers, as you have been with our district, but we, you have to collaborate with the kids. You have to talk to them. You have to know, you know, what they know and make it. Yeah. But I also think you have to train them to realize that they can initiate and speak up for themselves. And that's something, that word we have been using in the last few years, especially with our third graders, how, what initiation means and then how to do it. And we role play and we act it out. And, you know, we're dealing with eight-year-olds, but you know, I can see how younger students could use that same idea. And obviously the older ones can get that naturally. So we're curious, how did you come to learn of this or realize it or, or come to the understanding of this work and this mind shift? Yeah. So, you know, I want to just double back a tiny second and then we'll hop into that yeah. question. Because one of the things that I was I was thinking about um, as you started to clarify the naturalness, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes I feel like the younger students, the ones that actually are just generative and openly curious, they actually potentially have that kind of innate ability to voice their thinking, their feeling, their imagining and wondering. And I think uh, as students learn how to do school or understand or the, a little bit more of the rules and what's expected, they may actually get um, trained out of that level of curiosity, agency, wonderment. So the, yeah. the, the challenge for me, and again, I, I'll lean into that next question on what led to the work on personalization. I... Um, I wrote an article in Ed Leadership on the myths about teaching and learning. And that actually turned into a book. And, and so one of the, the fascinating parts as I started to reflect on, on the question is like, there are a couple of myths. Like I'll give you, I'll give you one or two. Yeah. If I make a mistake, my job is to replace it with the right answer. And when you step back and you think about it, if students genuinely believe that that's their job, then it's actually not just suppressing their learning, but it actually is um, changing the dynamic of what does it mean to be good in school in the first place. So this notion of perspective taking, what is in the students' minds and how can we actually unearth clarify those misconceptions. But to do that, as you said earlier, you had to talk to your kiddos. So another myth is what the teacher wants me to say is more important than what I want to say. And there are so many kids that genuinely believe that to be true. So the notion of mimicking what the teacher wants you to see, think, and believe. Or another myth is speed is synonymous with intelligence. And I think the challenge is that many um, geniuses in the world actually learn slow. They're methodical and thoughtful. So speed is not an indication of what does it mean to be gifted? What does it mean to get all A's? Speed actually potentially is an antidote that we might need to manage our impulsivity on hmm. and step back and think and imagine What's leading me to the conclusion, the, the, the jumping that I'm doing? And how can I continue to um, engage in a more 
robust, topsy-turvy learning journey where that's really where the power and the heart is. So Breaking Free, I think, came out in, I believe, 2011. Um, the other wild card I, I think most people don't know is I actually had a stroke, pretty significant one, um, oh, when the book was um, in the editing cycle. So I actually oh, <laughs> had wow. to do my final edits on the book that I didn't actually remember um, writing. Wow. So, Oh my it's, goodness. It's another fascinating way to move into the sort of the, the history of where did my sort of fascination for personalization come from is because I went from the gifted kid growing up to mm-hmm. I felt like the special education kid where I literally had to rebuild my use of language. Mm-hmm. And that to me was, you know, not only jarring but mm-hmm. also just a, a very significant shift on how do we grow every single learner in the room to make them feel that they can aspire to their own goals and, and dreams, regardless yeah. of what um, folks will tell you along the way of what you can and can't do. Wow, that's incredible to have both of those perspectives, not often, you know, rarely ever does that happen. So that that is something new that's pretty incredible. Um, so with this personalization, you know, obviously Jill and I went to college a little while ago, but... <laughs> Me too. <laughs> just, just a little after you. <laughs> you know, for those new teachers who are coming into the classroom and they're not learning this or mm-hmm. being taught this in a university level, like how mm-hmm. can they kind of dive in and use these methods as first-year teachers? Yeah. Or ten-year teachers, really. I mean, mm-hmm. applies to everybody. Absolutely. So when, when I'm introducing the concept of personalization... I start with the four attributes and the four attributes are a clean and easy way to get launched into the experience. And the attributes as we um, created it, Benna and myself, um, really are designed to be common terms. They're also designed to be uh, ideas where um, it doesn't require a lot of massive pedagogical overhaul. Okay. So the first of the attributes is voice. So everybody knows what voice is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I think the theory is that it's not only clear for teachers, but it's also clear for students. So when I hear voice, voice means that this what the students say matters. Now, I know that sounds a little bit um, superficial, right? That most teachers would absolutely agree right out of the gate. The kid's voice matters. But when you're starting to think about the, the history of the myth that I um, shared a little bit ago, that if I make a mistake, my job is to replace it with the right answer. It's really getting students in this space where they feel like their voice only counts if they think about what the teacher wants from me. So it's like sort of funneled into a particular lane as opposed to a voice where I can raise questions. I can share my um, critical thinking or analysis that may or may not line up with what the teacher wants me to do or what the narrative is that's happening in the dialogue or the discussion. So when you have voice, it doesn't mean that your opinion is right, but voice means that you have a level of like psychological and physical space to actually share your thinking and that people actually care to better understand what you are trying to say, whether it's um, teachers or peers engaging in probing questions, um, even something as simple as tell me more about why you think that. To try to continue to draw students out, that's uh, such a powerful thing, and mm-hmm. not only for our little ones, but all the <laughs> way through high school. So that's one of the four attributes. So I don't know if you want me to rattle through. <laughs> that's yeah. Well, and I was just pausing to think about how you might even give 
a specific example to our listeners because we do have parents, we do have teachers and students themselves, but I'm thinking of, you know, the kind of battle between the teachers who have to deal with teaching these standards by the state. And so they feel that pressure of like, oh gosh, we have to hit all of these things and we've got to, you know, get through these things and and make sure everybody meets these benchmarks and things like that. But how could a teacher, you know, take what they do need to teach by the state requirements and turn it into a more interesting and exploratory type manner to be able to tap into that voice and and the other three choice. Like I think of that when I think of, you know, not to give away another one, but (laughs) the choice part too. Yeah. So when it comes to um, choice, you know, we start to frame it as co-creation, meaning that the students actually have a role or a say to sharpen the directions, the the way they want to engage in the work, the inquiry and the ideas they want to explore. So that can very much be done in service to what the standards or the expectations are for a particular unit or course. Um, But the interesting part about voice and co-creation is that you have to actually make room for that to exist. So, for example, if you are on a rush for your entire period because you have to sort of cover information so that students are set up or queued up for the assignment, their homework, um, their project the next day, the test that shows up later in the week. Mm-hmm. That rushedness means that students are getting pretty clear on what's most important. Where you're going is more important than the interaction and the diversion that happens along the way when you're starting to lean in to voice and co-creation. Voice is like a a question that potentially is offering an off-ramp or a tangent. And the teacher has to think in those moments, what are the, where do I actually take that left turn for a little bit and pay attention to what students are processing or thinking? And where do I actually move on? And that's sort of the delicate dance that a first year mm-hmm. teacher can begin to start to engage in. Yeah. And I think as as you start to try these baby steps in these four areas, you're starting to see them come out naturally and it just all kind of goes together. Yeah. I remember my first year of teaching at the young age of 21. <laughs> I thought that I, I think maybe the first two weeks, I thought I was doing a pretty good job um, because my gauge was here was the lesson that I wanted to move through. And at the end of the period, I was successful in moving through that experience. And then I think like with after like the first two weeks, I started to look up more regularly <laughs> And I started to look around. I'm like, oh, my gosh, these kids have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been there. (laughs) That's right. And then and and in that moment, you're like, oh, so it's it's not just the the massive preparation and prep to get ready to teach a particular uh, topic or lesson or the design of an assignment. It's actually giving space and hearing how kids are interacting, how they're making sense of it. So that to me is sort of that space for voice. And in that way, you'll start to see areas where co-creation can come alive. Right. And really helping kids feel like you want to know what they're thinking. We did that today with a student and, you know, we're three days into seeing our students in (laughs) our intervention kind of pull out room, resource room. And a student had an idea and we said, you know what, it's okay for you to tell us this. This is what we want you to initiate are your ideas like this. So if you get an idea like that, go ahead and initiate and tell us that you want to maybe do that and we can look into doing it another time or, you know, whatever, plan ahead, things like that. So I think they start to realize like, oh, 
I'm a, I mean, you can sit on, see it on their face. Yeah. Oh, Smiling from ear to ear like, yeah, oh, this is happening. You're yeah. allowing me to like have that co-creation. Yeah. And it really just starts naturally flowing between the teacher and the, and the students. So we, we experience that a lot because I, I do feel like our students um, really, I guess, lean into that and, and naturally yeah. gravitate to those, you know, opportunities. They love it. Well, it's so fascinating that you're mentioning that because students need to um, uh, feel, well, students feel like they need to get permission. Mm -hmm. And again, it's true for many kids. By the way, it's probably true for many teachers when it comes to administrator doing So just give me the permission to to take a small step, to, to experiment, to innovate. And I think the theory is that when we're trying to encourage that, and that's just such a a a beautiful example, especially in the first three days of school, you're stepping back and saying, in what ways um, have I started to lean in and plant the seeds for that co-creation? So in other words, it's not just the the tone that you have, the approach that you have in your um, experience with the kiddos. Part of it is probably the culture that they are continuing to experience in Mason, where they're starting to see that personalization is something that is is valued and important. But I think the other part is um, there are so many times people say, well, what's the difference between personalization and differentiation? And co-creation is a beautiful <laughs> way of starting to tease into that. Because differentiation, there are times where teachers give a list of choices. So whether it's a choice board or it's some other configuration, um, the idea is here's two, three, five choices. And then they make this note at the bottom saying, by the way, if you come up with another choice, just go ahead and reach out to me. And when I start talking to teachers that have that as their particular practice, um, they basically say it is very rare uh, that anybody actually reaches out to them with their own idea. And so the interesting part of why when you have a litany of choices and then you have that note on the bottom, do students actually um, not say anything? And the answer is because, A, there are a lot of choices <laughs> that they, they can choose from. Um, but B, it, it's really starting to in what ways are we training them to think broadly before they're now determining what might be the best move, the most interesting idea? And how can I continue to take a little more of a stake in guiding my own learning experience? Because ultimately, differentiation actually can be a series of choices that students are making based on perhaps some limited understanding of who they are. So one of the attributes is also self-discovery. And self-discovery ultimately is the ability to not only learn by doing, that's sort of how I continue to become more skillful and sophisticated in the content, but it's also self-discovery of who I am as a learner. What are my strengths and talents? What are the kinds of things that I really gravitate to? And when I gravitate to them, do I gravitate to things because they are easy, because they are um, something that doesn't necessarily push me to think deeply or to challenge my assumptions? Or is what I'm drawn to ways where I can actually um, sort of find joy and passion and interest in the complexity and in the ambiguity of problems and challenges. So that's sort of the territory of self-discovery. And they go hand in hand, self-discovery and co-creation. If we don't continue to have students begin to not only study the content of their disciplines, but also study themselves as learners, the yeah. opportunity to grow in that capacity um, uh, starts to stagnate a bit. My just quick explanation yeah. of how personalization is 
a little bit different than differentiation. Differentiation is so incredibly powerful, but it's still something that the teacher is making a significant amount of the decisions on behalf of the student. And then the student is working to select from the choices that teachers already made. Yeah, absolutely. And something you just said made me think about the habits of mind, which I we can't wait to get to mm-hmm. in just a second. But before we <laughs> jump in that direction, um, yeah. do you have like a fun little, I don't know, success story about personalization that you could share? Yeah, I mean, there's so many um, fun success stories. I think one of the interesting parts is that when you walk into a classroom, I walked into a grade three classroom where they were working on um, mathematics and the students were just so excited to walk me around to the different uh, areas and stations. So they actually were demonstrating that they were um, not only able to be my my quick tour guide, but the opportunity (laughs) too to start to think about in what ways are they clarifying the, the, the depth of the pedagogy that's happening in each of the individual areas? So one of the things that I um, chatted with the teacher after, and she said that um, she initially, as she started her personalization journey, she did a ton more work. Um, to actually start thinking about how can I open up and expand kids' opportunities instead of deciding things on their behalf. But at the same, at the same time, as she started to realize and engage with them as collaborators, she started to realize that asking them much earlier on was the most helpful thing she could do um, so that they could actually share what's working and what's not working, what they are interested in trying. So that's just a, a quick example of uh, walking into a grade three classroom and starting to hear the, the learning mindset and culture and journey that not only kids were able to articulate, but the teacher was um, sharing that with them as well. So explain what you mean by earlier on. She asked them earlier on, does that mean at the beginning of the year? Does that mean at the beginning of a unit? Like at what point did she find it most helpful to really talk with her students about them being able yes. to give their voice? Yeah, so uh, the, the first um, uh, way when I said earlier on, it means that she actually started to realize that the earlier she can tune in and build that culture, a culture of um, students willing to engage in taking responsible risks, But the teacher is also taking a responsible risk because she's clarifying that while she may have thoughtful plans on what she thinks they should do, at the same time, um, deciding that that was something they should do without really stepping back and hearing the student's perspective um, ultimately was something that she actually continued to walk away from. So the earlier in the year, but also really regularly clarifying for students, um, for example, we're going to try this strategy out for the next two days. Not everything is a democracy. You don't have to (laughs) go to consensus on everything. (laughs) The teacher is still very much the authority figure in the room. But ultimately, if students begin to test out a couple of strategies, and this is true in any subject area, any grade level, then they can begin to step back and think about how does this strategy help me in this particular situation? If I could do um, another problem all over again, what strategies would I actually want to take out of my toolbox and begin to use that? So to me, the interesting part of gradual release of responsibility is true not only with our little ones, but also true with our uh, high school students in AP classes, to continue to become curious, to investigate not only the content, but also themselves to determine how can I become more metacognitive of my own learning behaviors, my own tendencies? What are the areas that I want to grow? And how can I do that within the context of your classroom? 
This makes me think of our framework that we use in our gifted resource room where I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with, but the content, which is leading to the process, which leads to the product, which leads to the assessment. And we really do walk the students through it. We have it up on a board. We teach them all of those steps so that they're aware of that process themselves. And we take time out to talk about each of them as they're happening and then show them like, all right, here are some of the choices. Can you think of even any more choices? So for example, with the content, we will typically take four areas. So we might ask a question, like an essential question that has four different angles that could go in any of those four areas for our unit. So we will ask mm-hmm. them maybe in a question, then they they will vote to give us their feedback on what they want to study. And we'll usually take the one with the most majority um, to kind of have our overarching unit. And then we do, we continue to just keep providing lots of choice. And then again, the voice piece. And then in the self-discovery part, we take that assessment moment and have them throughout that content process product assessment. And we'll have checkpoints, which are really self-reflections. And that's where we really pull in our habits of mind. And that I know we're getting to in just a minute, but it really is cool to see these eight-year-olds know our framework, be aware of the framework, and then kind of start taking over in a sense, like driving, you know, where we're going in our unit. So it, it just really helps them, again, go back to that initiating piece where they really can initiate and feel like they're like the grownups. They're like yeah. taking over in that sense of taking over their own learning. Yeah. And again, you know, I think the other interesting part, um, the fourth one is social construction. And that's the really interesting part of how we continue to engage and interact. Students actually are wanting to explore interesting topics. I think part of the challenge is that they may get frustrated because there are some foundational pieces Um, that they may need to become more skillful or fluent at to be able to really become immersed in the thinking and the analysis and the conversation, the creation. But ultimately, social construction is really how we're making sense of things together. Mm -hmm. And that means that I can actually um, interview an expert in any field. And the theory is that my asking of the questions is a level of research and analysis to frame those questions, but it also is a show of respect and interaction. So this interview is a beautiful example. So while we um, reviewed some questions ahead of time, at the same time, this conversation is so rich and significant for me as um, an educator is that we're interacting in the Mm -hmm. experience. So it's not a a predictable sequence. It's something that is dynamic and alive. And ultimately that to me is the very heart of social construction where people are curious about the thinking of one another. And that starts elevating um, new ideas, fresh thinking, and the willingness to actually want to go out and do it again. Yeah. And it's like a tennis match. You know, we are constantly using that metaphor here and we say, you know, you take your turn and and you talk and you share, but then you toss it back to the other person with questions to find out, well, what is their thinking? And then it just yeah. keeps going back and forth. But it really is, you know, kind of a dance. You mentioned that before too, because, you know, it just, it, I don't know, it just kind of develops as it goes and it's, it's exciting. and and you learn from it and you feel euphoric as <laughs> we're yeah, smiling well, ear to ear over here. It's, well, it's and, really you know, cool. I, I think the other interesting piece is like social construction in the heart of it, that like practices or routines or protocols are uh, just a, a, a great starting place for any teacher. So use a protocol, something like save the last word for me, where Everybody in the group has an opportunity to speak. So it's predictable. 
it actually is honoring the notion of voice. But it also is honoring that what I say is impacting what the person is going to say next. And so the dynamic of starting to see using a protocol like that, and again, there are a million protocols on visible thinking routines, um, but I think the theory of continuing to get kids active, it's not just physically standing up, although that definitely helps, but it also is starting to get them moving um, with their thinking and the opportunity to continue to feel connected, not just to the content, but also connected to each other. Oh, this is amazing. We could seriously talk for a really long time, but <laughs> I think what we'll do to honor your time is how about you talk to us about the habits of mind by first yeah. telling us what they are. Okay. Well, the short answer is that habits of mind are a set of thinking dispositions at the very core of social, emotional, and cognitive behaviors. So the interesting part about the habits of mind is that while we first learn that there are 16 habits and here they are, <laughs> so we're yeah. not going to go through all 16, but the <laughs> idea of social construction, for example, at the very core is listening with understanding and empathy and questioning and um, posing problems. The heart of that then means that when we do that dance, when we're looking at a text together, when we're wrapping our arms around a problem or a challenge and we're trying to figure out what direction or what, what's a good approach to begin to make sense of this thorniness. That part is really very much grounded in our ability to grow our interpersonal skills. But we're also learning how to um, create ideas with others. So the opportunity of looking at habits of mind as growing the capacity of students thinking and working together so that they're more metacognitive of not only what habit they're using, but the approach they're using and how that works for them. So personalization, as you add that layer in, it means that students are much more cognizant of what's happening so that they can continue to learn about who they are and what they want to grow into, the kinds of problems or challenges that they feel like they're in a, a bad feedback loop or they're, they're um, uh, trying to grow out of something or grow into something. Mm -hmm. The habits of mind are so incredibly helpful. But ultimately, they help when you don't know what to do because it's not a level of certainty. There's no right answer or easy solution or quick response. And that right now is true for many of the problems yeah. and challenges that we're facing yeah. right now throughout the world. Yeah, so we love the habits of mind here <laughs> and <laughs> we use them daily. We are always talking about them. We're always referring to them. We actually have our students um, goal set using the habits of mind and our kids know them back and forth and they can, they, they know themselves like, Oh, these are the habits that I truly need to work on. Or these are the habits that I, you know, I yeah. feel like I'm excelling at, but what have you seen other other educators doing with the habits of mind? How are they using them in their classrooms? Yeah. And so as you started to describe it, um, I think the notion is that it's how you're interacting with the habits. Yeah. Because oftentimes when people first start looking at the 16 habits, there are a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just difficult to even like wrap your brain around what are the 16 again? So <laughs> treat it like um, the periodic table. You don't need mm -hmm. to memorize yeah. them. Yeah. Um, so you can have a, 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 like a big wall poster or you can have a bookmark at every kid's desk or what have you. But to really start to make it um, truly feel like you're intentionally stepping back and determining what kind of thinking dispositions does this particular assignment, problem, issue, scenario require. And when I said that out loud, what your kiddos um, are already doing is doing the same thing. 
that they're actually learning how to be metacognitive about um, starting to step back and say, what habits might I need to spend a little more time working on? Mm-hmm. And those habits are not because um, that they need work on them in general. Those habits can be very situational. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I might need to work on a habit of listening with understanding and empathy with three members of my faculty, but the rest of them, that's not necessarily the habit that really requires my time and attention. Maybe it's um, the opportunity to um, sort of think about gathering data through all senses. So that to me is so incredibly important that habits of mind are situational. Mm-hmm. And then I think the last piece is that um you don't ever master the habits of mind. Right. I mean, working with Ben Akalik, um, <laughs> who is just such an unbelievable joy to have as a, a partner and a collaborator and a dear friend, but she basically embodies the habits of mind with art. So it's always an aspiration. The notion of the INGs persisting, managing mm. impulsivity, it's because we're always in a, an, an act of becoming. We can't master the habits of mind. And that is a good reminder because we actually tell our students, you know, this is something we're focusing on, you know, and in maybe like our habit of mind journal session for two weeks straight. But they they we can tell that different ones pull in at different times. You know, it's it's funny how it all just kind of flows together. And then we also say this is something that we might have to work on for the rest of our lives. I'm thinking of one of our students in particular that is now in the next grade level. And he, we saw him in the hallway and we have even like a hand signal. His is managing impulsivity. (laughs) And we kind of worked on this thing of like, almost like a yoga om kind of like movement with your hands and your fingers and, you know, your face. And I'm doing that right now. Okay, (laughs) you know what I mean? And so we would do that Um, with our little our student, our friend, and he got it. Yeah. He knew that when we did that, he was like, oh, I need to a lasso my, yeah. <laughs> to my, you know, That's manage right. my impulsivity. And we did that with him all year. And he, I I truly believe he could walk away and even come up today and say, I know that my managing my impulsivity is probably an area I still need to work on but he doesn't feel like that's a bad thing. Like, I think Mm. he feels like this is his personality. This is his way of learning. This is his way of thinking. And he's excitable. He's an extrovert. He really wants to Mm -hmm. just share out and that's okay, but there's a time and a place to respond wisely. And I think that's the message that we were able to convey because of us using the habits of mind and then that approach of, hey, we're gonna just work on this throughout every day. And I think he really does feel like I I am still a great person, even though he's the typical blurter outer. (laughs) And um, he knows that, you know, that's something to work on, but I think he still has a good self-esteem. I I mean, I think it's just such um, a a powerful example. And, you know, I I think the interesting part is that we, I, we can start thinking about growth mindset and fixed mindset all mm-hmm. of a sudden. <laughs> start thinking about the connection to habits of mind. That sometimes when we feel stuck, when we feel like the world's against us, um, whether it's you know in a particular subject area or in a particular situation or scenario with friends, um, the opportunity to actually step back and not will yourself to do anything, but to start to say, what habit of mind might help me start to unlock my thinking a little bit? And so the notion of that continued practice that, that you're just demonstrating so beautifully that not only are you doing that in your classroom, but students are beginning to do that for themselves. Mm -hmm. So you moved way beyond Um, the 16 habits of mind as a labeling system. And you're moving toward the idea that once I can become aware of what's happening, I can actually step back and pause for a moment and think about 
what might be a habit that if I spend a little time cultivating or I can take a, a habit that I've, I've, shared, I've practiced before and use some of the strategies to help me sort of make sense of this particular concern, that's really where it becomes just so incredibly rich and powerful. We obviously we're huge fans. Um, <laughs> if we continue this work and yeah. personalizing and using these habits of mind with all of our kiddos, what do you think the projected outcome will be with these kids in 10 years? Okay. Are you ready for this? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on tight. <laughs> I think they're going to like school. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I was just trying to sort of, figure out what's the most profound thing that I could say in response to that question, they're actually going to like enjoy yeah. the, the experience. That's, that's really the heart and w- what I hope for that. It doesn't feel like a, a like a massive chore. It doesn't yeah. feel um, stressed and rushed and harried. Yeah. And that's as true for the students as it is true for the teacher. Because mm-hmm. I think at the very heart of working with personalization and habits of mind, it means that the teachers um, are becoming a little bit lighter. Yeah, yeah. I don't even so feel I'm like we have to wait. <laughs> we don't have to wait 10 years for that. I feel like we see that happening now. Yeah. With yeah. the shift that we've made, I feel like we yeah. we see them loving it now. Yeah. Yesterday, we asked our students... On a scale of one to 10, make a line, you know, with what you would say is your feelings about school and one being, you know, the least rating and 10 being the highest. And they had to do this without talking and get themselves in the line. And it was very interesting. Most boys were the ones at the lower end. So most Mm -hmm. boys were at the ones, twos and threes. And then we had a whole gaggle of girls at the tens. All holding both hands up. Ten, ten. <laughs> now we did have some boys at the yeah, tens. We did. But it I really felt like with those boys, you know, I wanted to fast forward, mm-hmm. you know, almost yeah. time machine and say, just give us a little bit more time, because this was our first day of having them actually in our classroom. Give us a little yeah. bit of time and then let's redo this mm-hmm. and see what you think about what how you feel about school. Because it is. It really, if you do implement the habits of mind with the personalization pieces, I think mm-hmm. these kids really do come away saying, wow, I got to own my learning and I do feel like they're treated like grownups. Yeah. And I think the grownups are doing like the real problem solving. And that's what we need to continue to bring into our classrooms that feeling of authenticity and that they are really doing something powerful and important and purposeful. And it's, it just all works together because of these mind mindsets, you know? Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. And I I think harriedness, if I mean, that would be sort of one, one indicator of if you're doing habits of mind and personalization deeply, the harriedness should be lessened. Hmm. And so that's not just true from a classroom teacher's point of view. It's sort of an interesting barometer from a student's point of view. What's Mm -hmm. the story the students at the lower end of that rating scale are telling themselves about what school's like for them? And are there opportunities, are there avenues, are there experiences where they find um, learning to be a joyful experience? Doesn't mean that it has to happen within the four walls of a classroom or the the school building. Right. Are there opportunities where they found a positive learning experience in a way that they felt like they got better at something, that they felt um, more in control or purposeful um, at the end of the experience? And the opportunities start saying that, uh, you know what, I can actually take something that is really hard sometimes incredibly painful and actually learn how to figure it out. Not necessarily Mm. in the same way as the person next to me, but I can feel proud of of 
who I am and what I've accomplished. And that may or may not line up with ultimately the score point that shows up on my transcript. Mm. That to me is at the heart of personalization and habits of mind. And I think there's enough research out there to say that's what they'll remember. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Well, that, that is a great place for us to wrap things up because that is just a lot to reflect on and really, you know, take in. So it has been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today, Allison. And before we go, will you tell our listeners where they can find you, find your work, find your books? What's the best place to follow you? So the best place is on Twitter and LinkedIn. So if you just um, punch in Allison Zamuda, that should be super easy. Okay. Um, And I also gave you um, uh, Learning Personalized is the website that I curate. Okay. And um, the I'll just do a, a quick shameless plug that yes. I'm going to actually have a, a new book coming out in 2023, which is very exciting. Congrats. What is it? So what can you tell us? What's the title? Woo. Yeah. So uh, the title is still yet to be determined. I um, had an opportunity to, uh, this is my sort of sourdough project during COVID. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was a, a, a two-year um, uh, beautiful journey with Heidi Hayes Jacobs. Um, who is uh, so masterful and, and visionary on uh, curriculum mapping. And so cool. both of our sort of love affairs for curriculum design and development, we actually created a, a fresh new idea called um, curriculum storylines or storyboards, where teachers mm-hmm. and students are laying out what's the story that we're telling and how are we um, learning from the stories that we tell? Oh, that's so cool. That's just a, a quick um, thumbnail of it. Yeah. The title is yet to be determined, but it's the notion of um, learning how to step back and figure out what's most important here, what's the story that we want to tell, and then beginning to think about in what ways are we um, inviting students into the curriculum storyline, using language that is accessible and approachable, using images that actually draw them into the story, uh, writing language um, that does a quick thumbnail sketch of the focus of the story, and then the authentic tasks that they're doing as part of that journey. I love that word story. Mm -hmm. I think that's so powerful. Yes. And yes. it's, it reminds me of what they do in, in filmmaking. You know, they yes. storyboard yep. all the time. I mean, that's how they create the beginnings part, the beginnings of a, of a film. So that's really cool and really relevant. Absolutely. Yeah. And, oh, and we, we love it. Part of the, the conversation that we had earlier is like the harriedness. You have to, from a curriculum storyboarding point of view, and it's really beautifully connected to the conversation we just had, you have to take an editorial eye because everybody knows we can't cover everything. So we are making deliberate choices all the time on what to cut out, what to scale back on, what to keep and what to create. So having that editorial eye is the necessary space so that personalization and habits of mind can thrive. Oh, that sounds wonderful. So it sounds like we also might be needing to have you back once <laughs> you <laughs> once you release your book. So when did you say in 2023 you're going to release it? Uh, you know what? Uh, it's in the editor's hands right now. So okay. we're hoping um, in the first half of the year. Okay. So That's great. But I will keep you posted. Yes, please. So much love to engage in conversation with you all. Yes. Wonderful. Thank oh you Oh my so gosh. Much. That would be fabulous. Well, thank you again, Allison. We Thanks so much. loved it. We love talking to you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Wow, Allison is incredible as always. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited that she joined us today. And I just think it's so important, this work that she has done and created with the Habits of Mind and that all of us, ages birth to, you know, 99, 99, yeah, there we go, 
can always be working on these habits of mind and they are constantly a work in progress and there always is one in every situation that you can keep in the forefront of your brain and be working on. And I, you know, love how we always tell our students that even we are constantly working on our habits of mind. Absolutely. Just like Allison said, they are an act of becoming the ing piece of it and even though there are 16 of the habits of mind i love how she says think of it like a periodic table because you're always going to be pulling from different ones because of the different situations that they're in and i think this is such important work for our students at such a young age to begin to be immersed in because as they get older they're going to realize oh i'm in this situation i can manage my impulsivity like we referenced our student who really succeeded at being aware of that habit. And then now he's actually practicing or putting into practice those habits and those strategies to help him to actually manage that impulsivity. And he's not only doing it, but he's thinking about it. And that is really how it all comes together. Yeah. And he can pull those things when he needs to at home, at school, at sports, at lessons, and wherever he may be, it is, it can be in any situation. And therefore, he's increasing his social construction, as she calls it, but we have called it social norms, and that's just good for everybody. It's good for him, it's good for his family, it's good for the people he's interacting with, and I think it's just a win-win for everybody, especially in these days after COVID, and really dealing with the educational setback, the academic setback, and even just the social aspect that is has been affected by COVID. Yeah. And if you don't know much about the habits of mind, we would love to challenge you to dive into Google, look them up, print them off, and really choose one. Choose one. Try it out. Practice it. Start your own little habit of mind journal like we do with our third graders and see how you become more aware. And the awareness then leads to practicing it more, which then leads to success. Woohoo! Have a great day. <laughs> it's helpful to find a friend that you can stick with and you can talk with school, them. And I'm understand. a little bit nervous about trying to find I'm mad at because it's so fun. It is small. I want to solve the Welcome to our voice segment, where we are passing the mic to parents, teachers, and leaders to hear about their gifted adventures. Hello, my name is Pratik, and today I'm going to be talking about one out of the 16 habits of mind. How did this all start, you ask? It all started in the beginning of third grade. Ms. Hartzik and Ms. Mullen taught us about the 16 habits of mind. And I chose managing my impulsivity to work upon. What is impulsivity? Impulsivity is when you get easily distracted, blurting, and shouting out answers. Managing impulsivity is a skill needed for the rest of your life. Managing impulsivity means controlling your actions. Ms. Hartzik and Ms. Mullen have taught me a signal as a reminder to remind me that I have to work on my goal. I have improved a lot by practicing and I think that practicing is a key to, to when you're acing a goal. Now, I challenge you to pick a habit of mind and work on it. Hi, everyone. My name is Margot. I'm in fourth grade gifted, and a hobby of mine is that I like to dabble in magic. But my specialty are card tricks. I like the gifted program because we can be creative and focus on more advanced things, such as presentation skills, research tips, and more. And Mrs. Hartsock and Mrs. Mullen were really encouraging. That's why I appreciate the gifted program. And one of the projects that we did in the gifted program were focused on the habits of mind. I like the habits of mind because they can really help you be a better person in exploring more areas to improve on. Because in normal academics, we want to be better in math, reading, etc. But the habits of mind help you in things that will help you prepare early for the future. For example, my habit of mind was, and still is, number 13, taking responsible risks. And this habit of mind, I think, helped me be more ready to try new things, such as new friends, new extracurriculars, and more. 
And there are other habits such as number 16, staying open to new learning. This can help you to not stop at maybe what your teacher wants you to research, but to go above and beyond. So, as you can tell, habits of mind are great for expanding your brain to explore other important things for life. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Adventures in Being Gifted. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating, write a review, and tell all your friends too. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Being Gifted Pod. And join us again next time for more Adventures in Being Gifted.